This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. AJ Timilkaran is an award-winning author and journalist and one of Europe's most highly respected political thinkers. Her 2019 book, How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, was hailed as a call to action to counter an international rise in populism. Two years later, in a world blighted by COVID and seemingly more divided than ever, she might have been excused for publishing a post-mortem. Instead, in Together, Ten Choices for a Better Now, she set out a manifesto for social and political change. This is not about how we messed things up, she says. This is about what kind of world we want to live in now, and the joy we can take in finding our dignity again. Before Eche joins us from her home in Hamburg, here's a clip of Together, which is narrated by Daphne Alexander. Since we can't cry it off, we laugh. Two determined headless chickens clucking into the apocalypse. The world is coming to an end, and for the last ten minutes, we have been meticulously trying to separate the plastic lining of our envelopes from the paper. It is another early morning in the late spring of 2020, only a few weeks into lockdown, one week after a massive earthquake rocked Zagreb. And now there is a dust cloud hanging over the whole city. We are two women of the same age standing on Martisava Street by the recycling bins holding our half-torn bubble wrap envelopes and shaking from our guffaws together even though we don't know each other. But for just a split second, our eyes meet and we see each other and ourselves. Our hair messed up, COVID masks crooked, and we are sorting our garbage into the appropriate bins to give us even a tiny bit of control over our garbage-like times since our latex-gloved hands are banned from fixing anything else. Pyramids and revolutions, symphonies and space travel, quantum physics and the Mona Lisa, and here we are, at the start of the 21st century, looking like the garbage of human history. Our sickening laughter is there to choke the all-too-human question of our times. Is this all we can be now? All we can do? What do we do now? During 2019, I was expected to answer that question after almost every talk I delivered in countless different theatres in countless different countries. After How to Lose a Country was published, I spent almost the whole year speaking about the logic of the political machine that had created all the confusion, fear and desperation we found ourselves suffering. No country is immune to the paralysing political and moral plague of our times, I was saying but by the time I managed to convince the relaxed Western audiences that this new type of fascism was waging a global war against basic human reasoning, my predictions were already coming true. Each time I finished a talk, for a brief moment, the same heavy silence filled the room right before the Q&A began. In that lead-like stillness, I eventually understood many were trying to make a crucial choice. Shall I ask for the way out of this invasive insanity? Or shall I just go out and have a drink to forget? AJ Tamukaran, welcome to My Life in Books. Hi, Red. It's so wonderful to be here. Oh, it's lovely to be speaking to you again. Now, we've just heard a clip from Together, which offers a manifesto for the choices that we can make for a better future. As the title suggests, it's a joint effort. It, it, it's about recognising our common humanity and working together. Can you expand on that, please? Yes, sure, Red. Um, what we are facing today as a globe is an interconnected polycrisis. It is from climate change, climate catastrophe, I should say, to last crisis of capitalism and also refugee crisis and several other crises all at the same time happening. So in order to overcome these crises and in order to reverse the dangerous course of history, 
we need the largest togetherness possible. We need to imagine ourselves not as citizens or not as you know part of a community, but as part of humanity. Uh, because the entire humanity has to come together to stop this really dangerous course of history, I think. That is why I was looking for uh, ways to get in, to, to, you know, create this togetherness, uh, especially in times of polarization and in times which we constantly talk about our differences. Yeah. And do you identify that there's a real danger in, in these turbulent times of losing hope and that provides very fertile ground for the rise of populist dictators, which which we'll come on to discuss in the second part of this interview. But they preach a doctrine of restoring pride. You, however, say that rather than pride, we should look at restoring dignity. What does dignity mean for you? Right. Before getting to that, maybe I should put uh, together in context. Uh, as we are going to discuss in the second half of this interview, I wrote this book called How to Lose a Country, which was published more than a dozen languages. And it was saying that rising right-wing populism, authoritarianism or neo-fascism, as I would like to call it, is a global phenomenon and we have to come together to beat it. Uh, it cannot be reversed on national basis. Um, so after writing that book, many people asked me about hope. And that is why I started writing together. And what I realized was that uh, the rising right-wing populism and the leaders of new authoritarianism all over the world are using politics of emotions. They are constantly stirring the emotions of the masses and they are mobilizing negative emotions in order to get support, which I think they have become masters of, by the way. Mm. In contrast of their mastery, we, the progressives, anti-fascists, we really dismiss this part of the politics. We always thought that the facts will convince people, and we firmly believe that if we tell the truth enough times, everybody would be convinced. But however, we already seen in the last decade that it is not, it's not the only political tool we should use. What we have to do as progressives, I came to believe, is that we have to master the politics of emotions as well. But we have to do it in a more humane and uh, morally correct way. So that is why I actually wrote together to bring a new vocabulary, new lexical, if you will, uh, to the progressive politics so that this larger togetherness can be created in times of conflict and polarization. So what I did was to build up an argument for each argument of right-wing populism. As we all know, they create a movement first, and when they are creating this movement in every country, they ask for respects, right-wing populist uh, leaders and spin doctors. Uh, and when they are asking for respect, they always emphasize or delve into the concept of broken pride. They tell the masses, the leaders tell the masses that their pride is broken. And if the leader comes to power, that pride will be mended. So I suggest to replace pride in our own progressive politics of emotions with dignity. Pride is a very violent word because in order to mend it, you have to bring someone down on his or her knees. Whereas dignity inherently is about human love and it is inherently connected to the togetherness of humanity because that, uh, that is why when somebody's dignity is broken, we can feel it. Pride on the other hand, is violent because in order to mend it, you most of the time have to break someone else's pride. And pride is a selfish, self-centered concept, whereas dignity is a selfless, utilitarian concept, actually. So in order to mobilize the masses, um, to turn their rage and pain 
into correct political demands in their interest, we have to come up with different words, different concepts that would touch their hearts. And I think dignity should be one of them. When right-wing populist spin doctors talk about pride and mending crime, we have to remind the masses that it is not their pride that is broken. It is their dignity and it belongs to all of us. Yeah, I mean, pride has actually become rather a, a trigger word, hasn't it? it? As you say, it is divisive. Uh-huh. Um, it, it implies that one person has triumphed over another. Whereas dignity, and I, I think all the words that you have selected for your 10 choices, they're cohesive words. They're words that pull people together and recognise our, our common humanity. And you also argue that we need faith in our common humanity rather than this rather nebulous view of hope, which has for decades been the, the, the watchword of political parties uh, across the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, this hope, I mean, like, I have a big problem with hope. I can go on talking about this for an hour, but <laughs> the gist of it is that I realized soon after I wrote How to Lose a Country, the audiences kept kept asking me the same question, where is hope? Hmm. And I didn't understand really why this question annoyed me after a while, but then I had to give some thought before writing together. And I realized that it is a politically dangerous word, hope. First of all, as I asked the audiences after a while, what if there is hope? Uh, will you do something different tomorrow in your political action? Or what if there isn't hope? So what will it change in your political action, that hopelessness? So I do think that it is pretty irrelevant, the word hope, inconsequential rather. And secondly, it turns us into this sheep-like beings. We are waiting for a hope. And then it also creates a dangerous environment uh, for those you know, fake prophets of hope to come out, do some TED speeches, and then make people believe that there is hope, that we can sustain the current situation. Mm. And also, you know, on top of it all, um, I think the reason we're asking the, this question has a history. As you mentioned, it has been going on for decades, this search for hope or insistent demand of hope. When did we start asking about hope? I would say probably it was 1970s. I think we started asking about hope because we were hopeless. We felt defeated after the 1970s, especially during the 1980s. And what we forgot then during the 1980s and since now, is that we have political agency. We do not need hope. We need conviction mm. rather than hope. When people are fighting for anything, they do not really ask for hope. Uh, and they do not really sit down and you know talk about hope. They, they just do whatever they have to do. And also, hope is a very fragile word for our harsh times. I'm like, if you look at client catastrophe, for instance, is there hope? Well, (laughs) very, very small hope there. Uh, So what are we going to do? Just lie down and wait to die? No, we have to do what we have to do. So in that sense, I think it is time for progressive politics to benefit from this ability of humankind And that ability is called believing in faith. Obviously, when I speak about faith, people tend to think that I'm talking about something religious, but they have to remember that we invented gods because we have the skill of believing. So that skill of believing has to come back to political discourse, I think. Certainly in many countries in the world, there is still a very strong religious faith-based power structure. In many other westernized capitalist countries, our, our faith has been put in consumerism and in a sort of Peter Pan-like, we can stay forever young so long as we spend enough on products. And 
And maybe our faith in that has been shaken. You certainly argue that we're coming to the end of Western capitalism as we know it. And that scares a lot of people because as you identify every ruling system throughout history has always told us that once that system collapses, there will be chaos and catastrophe. We, you argue, need to have faith in our ability as human beings to rise from those perceived ashes. Yeah, because <laughs> every system has that magic ability of making p- people believe that, if, that if, if it's the end of the system, it's the end of the world. And we are going through the same thing. And neoliberalism, in its essence, is this anyway. It is the cultural, political power of this economic system that tells us that this is the natural state of humankind and there is no beyond and above. Uh, if we are going to reach to the end of the system, uh, like you know, sailors in the Middle Age, we're going to fall out from the world. There'll be dragons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there'll be dragons. Exactly. I mean, like when, you, when we say it like this, it, it sounds funny. But then actually, when you look at the last five decades, a lot of money, a lot of energy has been spent on this, making people believe that this mm. is the natural state of humankind. And now it's making its last move, so to speak, by saying that we can fix capitalism within itself. We don't have to change anything. You know, the higher echelons of uh, the system in Davos or in, I don't know, in several other secret places, probably, <laughs> trying to find a way to sustain the system without touching uh, the pillars of the system. Even the scientists who write about climate catastrophe, they are almost afraid to tell that we cannot go on like this. The system has to change. Imagine this. We're losing the world and we are still thinking about whether this system can be sustained or not. No, it cannot be sustained. And there is nothing to fear about it. Uh, that fear is imposed on us, that we, we are forcefully told that fear. It's, it, it's not our fear, actually. It's the fear of the system. So we shouldn't take it in, so to speak. Yeah, we, we, we have to overcome our, our fear of fear uh, and embrace the, the reality around us in order to be able to go forward. And, and, and we have to look at history and realise that whenever one great ruling empire has collapsed, actually usually what's emerged thereafter has been an improvement. And, and you offer an alternative to the system that we are currently living in, a very consumerist system, which you saw emerge during the pandemic of COVID mutual aid groups where communities got together to help each other, to to master the economics of their community and distribute food and PPE and so on and so forth. And, And these mutual aid groups can offer communities an alternative to centralised government? Yes, they can. But then, uh, of course, that was a crisis and it was a, a limited pre- period of time. However, of course, we're going to have more crises in the future and the frequency of these crises will increase. Uh, but uh, let's imagine that we are imagining a new system for normal times, for a certain normality. Of course, we cannot deal with the very complicated, super complex world, global economics, without uh, considering the markets. Of course, markets will be there. But my suggestion, which is not rocket science, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) is to go back to a little bit, go back to 1960s, where social state was there. What we are experiencing today, and which has several consequences, horrible impact on humankind, is that the unleashed version of neoliberalism. I'm not, you know, as, as I told in Together, I'm not a big fan of the world word revolution because it's a bloodthirsty word. It's, you know, it asks for human sacrifice. And also, at the end, 
revolutions end up killing the most beautiful of us, leaving behind the mediocre to rule the ruins of our dreams of creating a heaven on earth. So we, we learned that throughout modern history. So I'm not a big fan of the word revolution, but we need a transformation. But unfortunately, and it's very obvious to me that it won't happen by nicely convincing the big capital. It will happen through struggle. Hopefully less human sacrifice will be necessary for that. But yes, we need to bring uh, regulated markets. We need to bring social state back. We need governments that are stronger than the capital. Uh, because today what we are witnessing is something unimaginable. The governments, even the UN, uh, even the international organizations cannot conduct the, you know, the, the, the doings of the big capitalist firms. Uh, it is so painful and tragic to see, for instance, that the UN's general secretary is saying that actually, you know, governments, yes, okay, they have to do things for climate catastrophe, but actually we have to convince the big capital. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, the, those companies represent a form of social Darwinianism where they are the apex predator and the rest of us are prey. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, in wartime economies, in uh, economies during crises, uh, they somehow go back to a little bit more uh, towards less social Darwinism. And why don't we just normalize that? Well, we have to normalize that because we are living in, in a very, very big and deep crisis at the moment. The globe is about to become extinct and somehow we don't per perceive this crisis as emergent as war or as emergent as a pandemic. Hmm. Now, some of those large, very rich companies are, of course, social media companies, and you argue that the way we need to be able to harness their power or at least not be polarised by it is rather than get angry, to pay attention, to, to play the long game. Social media is predicated on fueling argument, which means that argument gets more and more angry and polarised. And actually what we need to do is take a, a leaf out of Greta Thunberg's book as far as presenting our arguments and affecting social change is concerned. Mm -hmm. Because uh, anger is a commodity. That is why I am uh, replacing it with attention in the book. Attention cannot be commodified. Anger can be commodified, and it is commodified actually in, on social media because anger is the emotion that creates engagement, and engagement makes profit for social media companies. Thus, anger is the best commodity for in our communication universe at the moment. And it also creates the illusion that we are in political action, which is a, <laughs> another dangerous yeah. aspect of the subject. Yeah, at, but attention, yeah, it's boring. I mean, like, it's, it doesn't look like going on Twitter and, you know, ranting about stuff. It requires doing some homework. It requires keeping on with the boring work. And it requires your time and the commitment, basically. Mm. Um, one example I gave in the book is quite important to me because not many people know about this. In the book, there's a company, mining company, uh, that is going to start working in an area in Turkey. And the people in that area are protesting. And then after a while, thanks to good journalism, a journalist gets his hands on this document. And in that document, the expected time for the protests are included in the expenditure of the mining company. So anger is an item in the list of expenditures for a company. But if you turn it to attention, if you don't give up, then they cannot put you as an item on their list. This is very important to me. And this goes for everything we have to change in the world, from neoliberalism to climate catastrophe to refugee crisis, whatever you can think of. 
Uh, so attention is that. I know, I mean, like anger is such a sweet feeling. It's, it is amazing because it turns all of us to David. Uh, and mm. we, we feel strong enough to beat the Goliath and everything. But then, unfortunately, it's not sustainable and it is easily commodified. Yeah, I mean, actually, that David and Goliath analogy identifies exactly what you say. This is a difference between power and strength. Strength is pulling together as fellow humans to counter the power of something monumental like a Goliath. And the model that you actually offer, I, I hate giving spoilers on this show, but I am afraid we are going to cut to the final chapter of Together, is friendship. Friendship is an ongoing process where there are highs and lows, where we have disagreements between each other, and yet we still agree to compromise and we still agree that the friendship is more important than the bumps along the way. Yeah, I mean, like, yes, there is a chapter uh, replacing power with strength and there is a chapter saying choose friendship because friendship is a very unique form of human relation. It is the only relation that we aim for ultimate justice. I don't know we can get ultimate justice on this uh, mortal planet, but we aim for that. And that is a very noble attempt. So I was thinking about our types of political connections, like citizenship, party membership, this and that. And what I am seeing in the world at the moment, uh, through the protest moments, through the new democratic moments, through new progress is that they are creating already different kind of a political connection. And it looks more like a friendship rather than a political pa party membership, for instance. Um, and also, friendship requires human love. Mm. Another word that we don't really use in politics since a while, like some decades now has been, uh, because it's it's very easy to be cynical about it. And even I smirk a little bit when I speak of love in politics. <laughs> but Red, I mean, like, how can I put it? I've been through a lot, personally, and my country has been through a lot. And I have been studying fascism since seven, eight years, more than that, even globally. And unfortunately, it all comes to the fact that Fascism is the ultimate loss of faith in humankind. Yeah. And, and it is the ultimate rejection of human love. So if we want to beat it, we have to do the opposite. We have to have faith in humankind. And yes, we have to speak about love without smirking. Now, we have discussed some very, very weighty topics over the last 20 minutes or so. Together is an absolutely beautiful book and, and I recommend it to everybody because it is made up of, of stories of small beautiful actions that show that the human race is better than its bad parts. They're like roses in the end of a machine gun placed <laughs> there by a peace activist. And as you say in the book, good things are fragile but when they're put back together, they can create a mosaic, a stained glass window, really, of beauty, which is something to give us faith in our common humanity. And that's the strength of this book. Yeah, you put it so beautifully. It is not easy to believe in humans. They're slippery. Oh, God, they're maddening beings. But then I think... When we have doubts in our faith in humankind, we have to remember that we forgive God a lot, actually. And we are not so forgiving towards our own kind. And yes, every beautiful thing is fragile, but then they're also strong and they're also lasting. So to, to beat the lack of faith in humankind, we have to be courageous enough to speak about the beauty of humankind. And, and we can only do that through storytelling. Yeah, and also we are all afraid of 
sounding naive, maybe we should get rid of that fear a little mm. bit. Well, during the research for this book, you discovered that your surname, Tamulkaran, actually means foundation builder. And I think in both Together and the book that we're going to discuss after the break, How to Lose a Country, that you set down the foundations for, hopefully, a better future that we can all live together. Well, I hope so, even though I don't like the word. Maybe I should say, yes, I believe so. (laughs) (laughs) Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with Eje Tamulkaran, the political commentator and author of Together and How to Lose a Country. Just before the break, Edge, we were talking about How to Lose a Country, which you have written as a field guide to counter the rise of populism around the world. And you identify common tropes to the rise of Men like Recep Tayyip Erdogan in your own country, Turkey, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, and Trump and Boris Johnson a bit closer to home for some of us. And you say that there are common insidious mechanisms that men like this use, the first of which is, as you mentioned in the first half of this interview, to found a movement, and that is most definitely not a political party. Yeah, this is one of the, uh, you know, common patterns. They create a movement and this is already very promising. I'm like, mm, the word is promising. It's, you know, moving. <laughs> Dynamic. It has the potentiality. Mm. Um, and when I was writing together, I realized actually after How to Lose a Country uh, that they are building movements, whereas we are building communities, which is already like surrender before fighting. because community is a word that closes on itself and you know whereas movement is like going and doing something moving things draining the swamp oh yeah i mean like they have all the good slogans i would i should say (laughs) (laughs) not for the right reason but yeah they have all the slogans and very energizing slogans and by the way now we have a problem as well they're not all men we have Meloni in Italy. <laughs> so each time when I say a dictator, I cannot go on with the, with the sentence by saying only he. Now I have to say he and she. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and often these movements have come from outside the urban areas of a country. They claim that the ruling elite, in inverted commas, is out of touch with the real people, in inverted commas, and it sets up an opposition. There are good guys and bad guys, and your populist leader is your superhero who's fighting your side. Yeah, I mean, there is, of course, a real suffering, real victimhood there, because there is, you know, massive inequality. Uh, There's the crisis of capitalism and the, the... debts of this crisis is paid by the underprivileged. That is Mm. true. But then uh, what they thrive on, these leaders, is not the actual suffering. Uh, They thrive on manufactured sufferings, manufactured victimhood, which, let's say, in Trump's case, the victimhood of the white male, (laughs) let's Mm. say. Or, I cannot not love about this, uh, or in Boris Johnson's case, it was an absolute lie, which was, you know, the Turks will come to London, they will flood the UK if we keep on being part of Europe. You know, every country, every such leader has their own manufactured victimhood uh, in relation to the political universe of that country. And that manufactured victimhood is uh, the way to mobilize the organized 
ignorance in every country. I mean, like, seriously, how can Turkish people flaunt United Kingdom and also we have better food? Why would you? <laughs> <laughs> and better weather, uh, obviously. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Crucial to the movement is the control of language. And as you say, they have the great slogans, but they also seize control of the debate by terrorising the debate. The, you cannot disagree with them. So you give a, a great example where a fictional populist leader is having an argument with Aristotle and basically avoids being called a fascist by accusing Aristotle of being a fascist. And as soon as you've <laughs> seized that word, it can't be directed at you. And I was reminded of the kind of arguments that you have with a toddler, where a toddler will say that black is white and that they absolutely believe it and they are right. And there is nothing you can do to dissuade them of that idea, uh, apart from put them on the naughty step. And and it is an an, an infantilization of debate that we see from a lot of the populist leaders. Oh yeah, they are infantilizing the masses, and they are very good at it. They are mastering it. However, we have to know that this infantilization of the masses is not being brought upon uh, our global politics by those leaders per se. It has been going on since nineteen eighties. Uh, when you see there is no alternative, like Margaret Thatcher and Ron Reagan did once, mm. and when you, by killing people, by torturing people, or by using your cultural and political tools to convince people that they do not have to think anymore, and economy will be handled by those people who understand numbers, and politics has nothing to do with economy. Uh, and when you say that you have no political agency anymore because we are running an entire show, you start the infantilization. So neoliberalism is inherently dependent on infantilization of masses. A friend of mine, Max Krahe, who is a, a political scientist and economist, uh, he was giving me the example of Marge and the baby in Simpsons driving the car in the beginning when the scores are going the baby and Marge driving the car together and the baby thinks that she's driving the car whereas mm. Marge obviously driving the car so if you put a you know toy steering wheel in front of the masses let's say that is uh, voting every four years elections and make them think that they are running everything. And, they, and if you don't let them think otherwise, then you can steer the car wherever you, you want to. And the meanwhile, there is a big mass of people uh, thinking that they are driving the car, whereas they are becoming more and more infantilized, more depoliticized and so on. And you use the example of economics that actually we have since the 1970s been encouraged just to leave economics to the professionals, to the bankers, and please don't worry your pretty little head about it. You go off and play in the sandpit of the arts yeah. while the money men run the world economy. And, well, we'll see how that's gone. But, <laughs> and coming back to together, we need to be more literate in the management of our own economics to be able to wrest some of that control away from a ruling financial elite? Well, I mean, like, I blame a little, not blame necessarily, but I criticize the progressives as well in this case, because somewhere, and I remember this happening, I'm like old enough to remember this, uh, somewhere in 1980s, 1990s, we decided to retreat towards cultural criticism and we stopped talking about economics. It was as if, okay, you know, nobody listens to us and it's like too complicated numbers talking to numbers. We don't understand numbers. We don't understand stock market. It, you know, market economy is so complicated. Global economy is even more complicated, blah, blah, blah. And then we found ourselves cornered in this system 
and sheltering ourselves in culture and cultural criticism. However, and unfortunately, <laughs> the world doesn't run on cultural criticism. And unfortunately, you cannot change the world uh, through cultural criticism. I wish it was so easy. You know, he could use uh, some Foucault, some Lacan, and then here we go. We have a better world, but it's, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Um, so, yeah, we have to learn about it. I myself did my own part of uh, homework a little bit and read Piketty's gigantic book, uh, Capitalism, 21st Century <laughs> Capital, sorry. And yeah, it wasn't easy, but we have to understand that. And actually, it's part of the propaganda. We have to realize that as well. It is not that complicated. And yet instead, we, many of us, allow ourselves to be distracted by the the white noise of fake news and conspiracy theories, often peddled by populist leaders who, who don't want those kind of debates to take place. And, well, to be perfectly frank, we all know that conspiracy theories are alluring stories. That's why they tend to, to grab the attention. And you argue that actually the neoliberals have missed a trick, that there are no really interesting neoliberal stories to counter the, the white noise of fake news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it is a lost war anyway, but uh, what interests me nowadays, after writing together, uh, I think I'm becoming more practical, Red. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking politics is not refusing the current political tools, but rather using them. So I'm thinking uh, of the mechanics of these conspiracy theories. Because these conspiracy theories, my God, I'm like, they their speed of spread amazing i mean like mm. 5g bill gates it was all over the place like in a few days so how are they doing this because we need this tool to spread the truth about climate catastrophe we need you know passionate people stopping other people on the road and telling them that do you know that the world is coming to an end <laughs> and so on like a you know conspiracy theorist would do like with such enthusiasm and such passion. So I was wondering if there is anybody, any political strategist, rather, like especially at this point, working on the mechanisms of conspiracy theories so we can adopt them to spread the word about climate catastrophe, about massive inequality, about refugee crisis. I think we should do that. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, and I think this is, you know, what you're doing in your books. Your books are full of very personal stories that inform our view of the politics around you. There's a lovely line in How to Lose a Country, which is storytelling is the best way to communicate ideas, but it's also the natural penicillin for diseases of the soul. <laughs> and, and you are encouraging us all to to tell our stories, to tell our truths as a counterbalance to fake news and, and distraction. Yeah, that is true, because I mean, like, people learn through stories. People feel through stories and they act because of stories. Actually, stories are the, the mightiest weapons that humankind has so far built. Because we die for stories. People die in millions for stories. Mm. So, But their stories also survive them. If you've written exactly. something down, if you've recorded it, it will outlive you. Exactly. And I'm, I'm, you know, attempting to do that. And I'm attempting to, you know, rescue people thinking that they are not good enough. They're not strong enough. Uh, and I hope we, I'm, I'm doing something good for them. Uh, because this life, this real our reality, can be far more joyful, uh, or we can see the joy of reality better if we can understand the reality through the right stories. Now, you yourself write fiction, and in a rather illuminating passage in How to Lose a Country, you say that one of your most 
despairing moments, you started writing The Women Who Blow on Knots, one of your novels, rather as a person flying a kite during an air raid to show that the sky is bigger than the bombs. <laughs> do, yeah. do, you take, do you take solace in both reading and writing fiction? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's not solace. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it solace. It is, it is where the truth is, actually, fiction. That is where you see the, the lowest and the highest of human existence. So that is the truth. Uh, which you hardly find in non-fiction. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that is why I write fiction, actually, to reach my highest peak. Now, storytelling is an oral tradition, and you narrated How to Lose a Country yourself, and then together was narrated beautifully by Daphne Alexander, is there a reason you narrated one rather than the other? And would you have liked to have narrated together yourself? Because in, in some ways, it's a, it's one of your most personal books. Yeah, I know. I'm so sorry about that. Well, I, I love Daphne's voice. And I was the one who chose Daphne, among other voices, because I felt so close to my, I don't know, feeling, my feeling of the book and so on. But, uh, and I'm very thankful to her for reading together in such a beautiful way. However, I should, you know, admit that I would love to do it myself because it was very personal. But then it was the pandemic time and, yeah, we couldn't do it due to technical reasons. Mm. Uh, maybe one day I'll do it as well. Uh, maybe we do it again. I don't know. Uh, it would be lovely. I would love to read together, actually. Are you a fan of audiobooks yourself, or do you tend to read your books in print? Uh, I'm reading them in print, mm -hmm. but then um, sometimes I do listen some parts of audio uh, books and podcasts and so on, and I feel like I'm going to my childhood radio days. Oh God, it's so beautiful! Like it really, really. You know, it's, you know, I feel like drifting and it's, it's such a nice, liberating feeling, actually. Was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, Little Blackfish. Uh, it was read by my mother to me and she was a very animated reader. And the, the story goes, the blackfish decides to go to the big sea leaving her family and then she runs into you know other beings and then she goes through adventures and then uh, she comes back to the river with her family and tells all these amazing stories and then everybody falls in love with her unfortunately this ending of the story was completely different than my mother <laughs> told me I, I found out like a 35 years later that uh, the blackfish disappears. Nobody hears from her again. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, I think it's it did not only made me fall in love with the book, book books, but also it made me write books. You know, chase stories, and uh, it's good that I didn't know the ending of the story. It's too late to change my course at the moment. And that was one of the milestones. I'm like at the first milestone in reading, and the second milestone was Nikos Kazantzakis' uh, Zorba. Um, I I had a massive operation on my spine when I was 15. I had uh, spine tuberculosis. It was a near-death experience. And for four months, I had to lie in the bed without any movement. Uh, and then one of the books, and that was one of the books I read, Kozorba, uh, and it changed my life. I think it shaped me as a reader, that book. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Well, my current book, the one I'm reading right now, makes me do that. It's Malaparte, The Skin. It's a grotesque book and I love it. It's about the Second World War. I'm a, I'm a you know, it's only the old British men and me. We are big fans of Second World War. I'm a Second World War nerd. <laughs> my dirty pleasure. Um, so yeah, I'm reading that now and it, it, Hamburg, thanks Hamburg, it's full of rain 
So, yeah, I'm reading longer hours of that book. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to the listeners? I would strongly, wildly recommend A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. I'm like, it, it is many stories and it, it starts like a storybook, but then you realize that it is a novel and the characters are so nice and the story so nicely. I'm like, delicately and brilliantly uh, intertwined that you cannot not fall in love with Jennifer Eakin. And the her prose is incredibly poetic, which I love. Um, so I would recommend this for especially for those fiction fiction lovers, for novel readers. Eje Tumulkaran, as ever, it has been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for sharing your passion for storytelling with the listeners today. I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Red. It's, it's always wonderful to be with you on this radio. Thank you so very much. It's time to turn the page on this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Eje Tumulkaran, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leaf through our back catalogue or drop us a line, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.